Religion and politics are off limits for most of us, with the exception of a few television comedians. You don't discuss these things with your family, or you cause deep rifts. You don't examine these things without dredging up ugly truths. I wasn't exactly looking forward to this one, for those reasons, and more. But this story keeps replaying itself in my head. It just fits into this season of the Truth As I See It podcast. I call it Mexicali. in a brand new hammock strung up in between two brick pillars on the balcony of an orphanage in Mexicali, I couldn't imagine any better feelings. My best friend and I were young and passionate about life. As missionary kids, we craved new experiences like these. The wife of the man who ran the orphanage brought us steaming hot tortillas fresh from the grill every five minutes, and we ate until we were stuffed. Then we fell asleep to the sounds of the bustling border town around us. Every year, Renee would gather a group of young people from churches around Salem, Oregon, teach us some skits depicting the love of Jesus and the need for forgiveness, and load them all in two 18-passenger vans for a two-day drive to Mexico. It was there in those vans that we tried to find the cutest girls to sit next to, and if we were lucky, to hold hands with under our pillows. Renee ran these trips like a business. He was efficient and cheap, which made it affordable for our parents to send us along. There were different levels of fervor on our team. There were the kids who really put their hearts and souls into the skits. And there were those who put their heart and souls into the pursuit of Lucy from Dallas or Tiffany from Silverton. Me, I just wanted to soak it all in. I was never lucky enough to hold hands with a girl under the pillow for hours in those vans, but I envied those who did. I'd watch these kids fall in love or whatever it is kids fall in during spring break trips to Mexico. We'd leave early because Renee didn't tolerate being late, and it always felt good to drive away from the rain and soddenness of Oregon and enter the high and dry of Northern California. By the time we reached the grapevine, the relationships were all established, and Renee would stop at a truck stop where a man sold the most amazing tamales. I can't get the smells and tastes of those tamales out of my head even 22 years later. We generally reached Mexicali late in the evening, after driving through the ungodly parts of Southern California that remind a person of what landscapes in hell might be like. Crossing the border with up to 32 people, including more than 20 young people, is a daunting task. Yes, it was in the days before passports were necessary to get back from Mexico, but problems still came up. This is where Rene shined. He was gentle where he needed to be and firm where it required. I've never seen him handle border guards more deftly than when there were questions about someone's last name in their travel documents. Divorces happen, and last names get confusing for border guards trying to process a bunch of people at once. I couldn't follow the Spanish, but Rene seemed to explain the situation with all the persuasive power of a Jedi mind trick. After falling asleep with our bellies full and oily fingertips, Rene would leave instructions for his lieutenants, and he would disappear for days at a time. We'd wake up to the hot Mexican sun glinting off the glass shards atop the walls of the orphanage and the smells of spicy breakfast foods cooking nearby. These would be the last good smells for the day. Once you leave the orphanage, you deal with the reality of a border town, deep smells that are not associated with peppers, onions, and garlic. This was long before immigration became a nationwide political buzzword, but Mexicali reeked of desperation. Those who could cross legally did. Those who couldn't saved up their pesos for the coyotes and a chance at getting across the border. There was sweat, lots of it, hard-working sweat, and the sweat that comes from standing around collecting bribes from the hard-working and the destitute. I've never seen so many cops bribed in my life. 
We would drive the vans down to the Mexicali garbage dump, where the most destitute would sift through what can barely be called refuse. Refuse, if anything, is too nice of a word for it. The smell was unlike anything else, but it was more dead than rotten, more dank than decomposition. They carved small pathways through the trash. Finding something usable or edible in the pile was like finding treasure. Everyone would descend on the new loads that came in like kids to a broken piñata. We tried not to let the smells bother us. We performed our mimes and skits in front of small groups taking a break from foraging the heap. We had a translator who talked of hope, and some came forward to give their hearts to Jesus. And then we'd go back to the orphanage, where we'd play with the orphan kids for a few hours before sitting down to a big meal made by our hosts with money from our families back in Oregon. You can't get the stink of the dump off you for hours. It pervades everything. We'd go buy those rough canvas ponchos, and on cool nights, we'd bury our noses in the rough, industrial-smelling fabric and try to pretend away the smell. We handed out tracts on the street. These consisted of one message. There are two choices in life, heaven or hell. I always dumped mine in the garbage and walked through the market, out of the view of our leaders. Not having the distraction of a spring break romance to keep me occupied, I spent a lot of time thinking about the lives people led separated by walls and fences. The orphanage was just a few blocks from the border. You could stand along the 20-foot high fence with razor wire and look across to the houses in Calexico. You could watch your American neighbors go to work every day. The same sun-baked earth brown and dusty, the same winds blew hot and dry off the deserts to the east. Some days you'd smell the garbage dump all the way to the fence, and I wondered what people across the wire thought of the smell. My back hurt after sleeping in a hammock all week, so I switched to the concrete floor. But the house mom woke me up in the middle of the night and told me to go back in the hammock because there were scorpions. The orphans slept on the floor, or on bed mats on the floor. We stopped going to the dump after a few days, and the touristy feelings of parts of the city stripped away some of the heavy burden of watching the poorest people trying to survive on scraps. We bought switchblades and keychains with scorpions encased in resin. Our leaders confiscated the switchblades. And soon we rolled up our hammocks and said goodbye to the kids at the orphanage. They were stocked up in food, and we completed a significant portion of the new dining hall. The orphanage leaders would need a few more youth groups to finish it off. We left money and food behind, and Renee reappeared suddenly, shuffling us off to the vans for the half-day drive to Los Angeles. The smells of Mexicali receded in the Southern California heat, washed out, cleansed away by the stiff California winds. One day out of Mexicali, we were at Disneyland, our reward for a week of hard work in Mexico. After a few rides on Magic Mountain, we were American kids again. The narcissism set in and the memories of the garbage dump were like video cassettes put away into a box for storage. The storyline ended, the credits rolled, and we moved on. Sometimes I think about the people moving over the garbage heap slowly and methodically like ants. They saved their precious energy for those long hours in between finding food or finding something they could sell. This podcast was produced by Akamafia Productions. Any relationship to real events or real people is probably not a coincidence. These words and memories are my own and may contain traces of the truth. Music, as always, by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. You can catch the entire first season of the Truth As I See It podcast on SoundCloud. 